Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Would you join me this morning in Psalm 146? Time is a little bit later than usual. I knew it would be that way when I wrote my message, so I wrote it even longer than normal. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Sensitive crowd here this morning. Come on, guys. Psalm 146. We're continuing in our series, Worship from the Psalms, as we head into Thanksgiving and head into the season that is often stressed as a season of gratitude, which, by the way, I believe is of the utmost importance for Christians. I, I have long told you that one of, the, one of the fruits that is grown by the work of the gospel in our life is the fruit of gratitude. A Christian who cherishes the cross is a grateful Christian. And the Psalms drive us and push us to be people of gratitude, people of worship. Today we see the importance of praise as we dip our toes into the study, into the study of the hallelujahs of the Psalms. When I say that, the hallelujahs of the Psalms, I mean the Psalms that are Psalm 146 through Psalm 150 all begin and end with the line, Praise ye the Lord. They begin with that line, and they all five end with that line. And so we can call these Psalms, 146 to 150, the Hallelujah Psalms. Now anytime we say the famous words, the biblical words, Praise the Lord, we are actually saying in English what the word hallelujah means. Now maybe you knew that, but I've been, I'm 40 years old, I've been in church for 40 years, and it wasn't until two weeks ago that I learned that hallelujah was the word that meant praise the Lord. Hallelujah is a transliteration into Greek of two Hebrew words, hallel, and Jah or Yah, which we know Yah is Yahweh. Yahweh, W H, excuse me, Y H W H is the tetragrammaton to which we add vowels and derive the name Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, which is transliterated again, Jehovah. There's a whole lot more to that I can say, but I won't. But you might know that the Jews would not pronounce the name Yahweh. And so, to prevent anybody from even accidentally reading and thinking and saying the word Yahweh, they changed it to the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. A passage like the one before us today, Psalm 146, would say, and the Jews would say, praise Adonai. Praise Adonai. But it is from all of this that the word hallelujah came to be used. Hallelujah, the bringing together of Hallel and God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. When it comes to Psalm 146, we're not sure who the human author of this psalm is. 
or even the occasion for which it was written. But what is evident in this psalm are three very important elements to the Christian life, and that are the themes of faith and hope and thanksgiving. And so in this first hallelujah, in this first praise to the Lord, we're going to have our faith strengthened and our hope assured, and we're going to hopefully by the end of it, by God's grace, be people of gratitude. So look at Psalm 146 with me today, and I want you to see I've summarized this psalm in three statements and summarizing the psalmist's words. Number one, the passage breaks down first off to this statement, I will praise God while I live. I will praise God while I live. I want you to see here what the psalmist says about the importance this morning of praising the Lord. Look at Psalm 146 and verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. And every one of you that grew up in church like I did just wanted to yell hallelujah, didn't you? Praise ye the Lord. This is a, a phrase that is quoted word for word 24 times in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, it opens up Psalm 146, it ends Psalm 146, and the same in 147, 148, 149, and 150. This opening line reminds us that we, we need to be called, we need to be reminded to praise God. The psalmist understood that, so he looked out and looked around and he said to all the ye's that were out there, praise ye the Lord. Psalm 111 verse 1 said, Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Psalm 113 verse 1 said, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So it's familiar to us to read these words, Praise ye the Lord. But then the psalmist does something that is again not foreign to us. If we've read the Psalms, he starts calling himself to praise. He has already said to everybody around him, hey, all of you praise the Lord. But now he looks at himself and says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He wants to practice what he's preaching. And so he tells all of the people around him to praise the Lord. And now he says to himself, hey, self, hey, intermost being, praise the Lord. This kind of talking to ourselves may be one of the most important things we do. Since you listen to nobody like you listen to yourself. The person you hear the most, the person you listen to the most, the person you believe the most is yourself. And so the psalmist says to himself, hey self, you need to praise the Lord. King David knew that as well. In the familiar verses of Psalm one. Oh, three, he said these words, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In Psalm 104, he said the same kinds of words, the same theme is stressed. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty. And so he says to himself, hey self, praise God. But why should that be the theme. Well, there's many reasons why the Lord deserves to be praised. The writer here leans on something that's a little bit different. Usually, usually the psalmist follows with attributes of God. Here's why. But he, instead of speaking of attributes of God in this moment, he speaks of his own mortality. 
He says the reason we need to praise the Lord and the reason, self, that you need to praise the Lord is because you're not guaranteed much longer. Notice verse 2, he says, While I live, will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto God while I have any being. The fact that he knows he will not live forever means that while he is living, while he is breathing, he wants to praise the Lord. There's a lot of things he could be focused on here, right? A lot of priorities. If it is King David, there's a whole kingdom. There's, there's wars and problems. There's surely a lot he can focus on. He says, but what I want to focus on here is while I live, I want to be sure that I am praising the Lord. This one action deserves to be a priority. And there's a determination here, a purpose, a passion. He's living as Christians ought to live, knowing that, listen, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised this evening. And so there's an intentionality and an awareness even of our own mortality that says, I don't know when my last moment is. I don't know when my last day is. And so as long as I'm breathing, as long as I'm on this side of the grave, as Doug Brammer says, as long as I'm being seen here and not seen here, I want to be praising the Lord. That kind of intentionality is what the psalmist is talking about. The Lord is gracious to give me tomorrow, then I want to praise God tomorrow. Psalm 104, David wrote these words. He said, I'll sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Similar words from David. Thomas Watson said this. He said, the motion of our praise must be like the motion of our pulse, which beats as long as life lasts. As my pulse beats, so should my praise while I have my being, he said. As long as I have my being, I'm going to sing praises unto my God. He's implying here, he's aware that he won't live forever. And so he wants to express love for God. As long as his life lasts, he wants to live for the purpose to praise God. He's going to sing. He's going to proclaim God's goodness. And he resolves, and he does so. The resolve is seen in two words there. That he says, he says in, in both lines of verse number two, he says, while I live, will I. In the second statement, he says, I will. There's a determination. It's a mind made up. No matter what comes. We saw that last week, right? With the valley and the, in the, in the dark and treacherous pits and miry clay of life, there is a determination. No matter what comes my way, I will praise God as long as I'm living. Spurgeon said this, he said, We cannot be too firm in the holy resolve to praise God, for it is the chief end of our living and being, that we should glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we cannot be too firm. You can't leave too firm today saying, you know what? This week is going to be a week of praise. Tomorrow is going to be a day of praise. Today, while I have breath, while I'm alive, I am going to be intentional to praise God. My family's going to see it. My husband's going to see it. My wife's going to see it. My co-workers are going to see it. My grandkids are going to see it. While I'm living, because I'm not promised tomorrow, I want to have a resolve to praise God. 
want to encourage you today to commit to the unwavering praise of the Lord. It was February the 8th, 1527, the same year that Martin Luther wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The same year in the same country, the country of Germany, a man named George Carpenter was burned because he would not recant his biblical belief that only God can forgive sins. He would not recant his belief that there is no saving power in baptism or that God was not actually in the elements of the Lord's Supper. He would not recant. So he was burned to death. He was given every opportunity to recant, and on his way to be burned, when the hangman was binding him to the stake, he preached to the people. He proclaimed to the people. And then there was a moment where some of the Christian brothers that knew him that were there coming up to him while he was being fixed and fastened, they wanted to have a a sign, a token that even in the flames, even as he was being burned, that he would not recant his faith or his belief in the surety of the Christian gospel. George Carpenter, there in Munich, Germany, in the town square, said these words to these men. And you can find this in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He said, let this be a sure sign unto you of my faith and perseverance in the truth, that so long as I am able to hold open my mouth or to whisper, I will never cease to praise God and to profess His truth. The the commitment and the resolve that you can kill me, you can take my life from me for Carpenter's, Carpenter's situation, you can burn me, but I will never stop praising God. What a testimony. As long as I live, the psalmist said, I'll praise the Lord. I want to ask you, can, can we by grace today make that commitment? No matter what comes my way, no matter what heartbreak, no matter the pain, no matter the temptation, by the grace of King Jesus in my life, I will live a life of praise to God. Secondly, in this passage, we see, we see this. The exhortation to let's not put our trust in false hope. Let's not put our trust in false hope. This would be such an interesting statement to make if the psalm was written by King David. Because of what comes out of this. But notice these words in verse 3 of 146. He said, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there is no help. Some pointed words here. Now many of us think in terms of this language, princes, princes is a summary word for people of power and influence. Like I said, if it was King David, even more fascinating that he wrote it. These princes of our world may have more stress, more problems, more issues than you and I have. So the the exhortation to us is don't choose them as your object of confidence. Then he goes on to state that we shouldn't even put our confidence in the Son of Man. He doesn't mean the Son of Man speaking of Jesus. He's talking about any person who comes from Adam. Don't put your confidence wholly in any person. Adam fell in sin, and therefore every single one of Adam's children is capable of letting you down. And so we must caution ourselves against placing our trust, our trust 
putting our weight behind fully in confidence any person? And the words of verse 3 are clear. In whom there is no help. He's not saying, the writer's not saying here that they cannot help. They're not unable to be of any help. But to the truest, deepest, most real help that you need, it cannot be found in any prince or person. And so David says, let's not put our trust in princes. But isn't that just how our minds work? You and I are drawn. We are drawn to the influential. We're drawn to the charismatic leader. The one who fights for us. For our views, our rights. And let me let you in on the biblical view that while, while, while God places people in leadership and even in our lives, and there is a desire to encourage and to, and to endorse, let me encourage you to resist the temptation to make anyone the object of your full confidence. Spurgeon said so appropriately, as he always does regarding this text, he said, men are always far too apt to depend on the great ones of earth and forget the great one above. <laughs> we're great at, we're great at depending on the great ones of earth, but we forget the great one above. And we often look to everyone else and forget God. I'm aware of the timeliness of this text. That in the mass consumption of political news today, that in just a couple of weeks, many are either going to find their happiness after the midterm election, they're going to find their happiness, or they're going to be very unhappy. And I want to say to the Christian men and women of our church, put not your trust in American politicians in whom there is no help. In whom there's no help. What is being said here is that the prince, even though this... Even the Son of Man, look at verse 4, breathes his last breath. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. The Prince and the Son of Man breathes his last breath, he returns to the earth, echoing the words of Genesis 3. The caution for us in this passage about praising the Lord is being mindful of the trust, you might want to read into that in a way that the psalmist is saying, Beware of giving praise to princes. Beware of living a life of constantly praising influential people. Beware of, of putting all of your confidence in other people so that you can't praise God because you're so consumed with praising others because that's where your trust lies. The prince or the person in whom we place our hope and trust is going to return to the earth. And all the work that we had hoped would come about will die with him or her. And that's the point that the psalmist is making. There's no way to be sure of anything with anyone on this earth. So be cautious about where you place your trust. Be cautious about where you put your hope. Be cautious about in whom you give confidence. The only the only one sure of our trust, listen very carefully, in juxtaposing verses 3 and 4, the only one who's worthy of our full trust today went into the ground like everybody else, but he came out of the ground unlike everybody else. He didn't return to earth 
like the leaders of this world, but he went back to heaven. See, he is there, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is our hope. And so, therefore, let me encourage you today. Let's be slow to place trust in man and quick to place trust in God. Slow to place trust in man, quick to place trust in God. And so the resolve that comes about out of all this is, is number three. Lastly today, we will. We will place our hope in the Lord our God. We will. Psalmist does not make this definitive statement here, but he's leading us to where you and I want to and should make it. Look at verse 5. He says these words, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. Unlike, unlike the others, remember verse 3? Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Happy is the man, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help. The psalmist says that the one who has the God of Jacob for his help, that man or woman, that man or woman is happy. Happiness is an, is, is an attitude of the Christian today who says, I may not have all that I want. I may have many things that I need, but because God is my help, God is the source of my trust, God is the one in whom my hope lies, my confidence rests, I am happy. But the happy one doesn't just have God for his help. Notice verse 5. Happy is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. So the one who has the God of Jacob for his help, that one is happy. He's also happy if his hope is in the Lord his God. Jeremiah, in the midst of, in the, midst of the judgment of God, said in Jeremiah 17, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. Psalm 38, David said, For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. See, listen, there is a happiness to be found in trusting the Lord and placing our hope in Him, unlike the princes and the people of this world. And then the psalmist does what we would expect if we're students of this book. He goes on to tell us about who God is. Why should you be happy with God today? Why should you be happy if God is your helper and your hope? Why? Well, he's going to tell you. If this is your God, as described in the passage, then you can't leave today. Like my friend had said at dinner last night, you can leave here clicking your heels that this is your hope and your help. So look what he says in verse 6. Speaking of God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. See, there's two parts of this, it seems, on its surface, but it actually goes together. There's a reason we're happy in hope and having God as our help is because it is God's power. It, it, God's power is beyond our understanding in so much that the psalmist says he created the world. This is, by the way, this is the biblical view of creation to which if Christians choose to reject, they do an incredible amount of damage to the rest of Scripture in your view of God. God is the creator of all things and people. According to Scripture, not just Genesis 1, but all through the Scriptures, He did so in six days. He spoke all things into existence. He continues to uphold all things by the word of His power. This God made heaven. He made earth, the sea, and all that is therein. And this God is your help. This God is your hope. 
This God, unlike the princes of this world and people, this God keepeth truth forever. He guards it. He guards it because it is His truth. He's the creator of truth. He's true to Himself. He's true to relationships He has with His people. He's true to His covenant. He's true to His word and He is true to His Son. He's the keeper of all that is true. That's what the psalmist is saying here. And so he's the creator, the one who created all things, and he is the one who keeps his truth secure. Then he goes on in verse 7 and says, Speaking of this God, who is your hope and help, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry, the Lord looseth the prisoners. That's what he said about God. He's our hope and help. He's just. He brings justice. He gives basic needs such as food. He gives liberty to those in bondage. It's a triple blessing. Verse 8, the Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the strangers. He relieveth the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. See, the psalmist here continues an incredible explanation of Yahweh as a God of power, a God of care, a God of justice and compassion. And the whole point is to show you and me, this is the God who helps us. This is the God who is our hope. He's a God of power. He's a God of care. He's a God of justice. He's a God that is compassionate to those in need. He's excited to explain here that that this is the God of great works and of great love and of great power and a God who cares for all. But the bigger point here that you need to understand about Psalm 146 in this portion, listen, is that all of this is actually later on connected to Jesus the Messiah. Everything I just read to you is describing and is later prophesied of the Messiah to come and of Jesus himself in in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Psalm 146 is calling us as Christians to see the mission of God and this, this praise to God as fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. So when we say... Anybody could say, I put my hope and my confidence in God. The Christian says, the Father has called me to place my hope and my help and my confidence in Jesus. And the Spirit has empowered me to praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God. Why is that? Because Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Matthew 9, Jesus raised the woman who was bowed down in Luke 13. Jesus loved the righteous in Matthew 13. He watched over the strangers in Matthew 8. He blessed and cared for the fatherless and the widow in Luke chapter 7. And he turned the way of the wicked upside down in the temple in Matthew 21. Psalm 146 is all about praising the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, our God. The last verse the psalmist seems really glad to share with us these words. You ready? The Lord shall reign forever. Even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise ye the Lord. Giving unity to the text here, the Lord thy God, your help, your hope, your comforter, the one who is just, 
and powerful, compassionate, provider, and healer, the one who is reigning forever, listen, this is him. Listen very carefully. Anytime you see the word Lord, all capitals, like you see it there in your, in your Bible and in your paper and on the screen throughout today, that is pointing our eyes to Jehovah Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. He is the Lord of Lords, Philippians chapter 2. And so in this reference here, verse 10, hear me. Why do we not put our confidence and our trust and our hope in princes and in people? Why? Because there is one reigning. There is one. And in verse 10, it's the Lord Jesus reigning forever. He is your God. He is the one to whom all praise belongs. So in that passage, he is referred to as the Lord, and you see his kingdom reference. So it is the Lord, the King, who is Christ Jesus. The truth is, nobody rules God. Nobody rules him. He's not subjected to another. He cannot be moved by the whims of another. And so the Lord Jehovah Jesus, he is king. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is our help. He is our hope. Listen, because his kingdom is now and to all generations, he is all of that now and forever. Now and forever. So let me close this out with saying this. This is the God to whom we express our gratitude. We give him praise. If you'll think of it like this in the text, it's the two pieces of bread with the rest being the sandwich. That our lives, beginning and ending, are to be lived to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the redeemed heart of the Christian where praise flows. So I say, brothers and sisters, listen very carefully. We need to remember as we see a text like this, we need to remember where false hope has gotten us. Listen very carefully. Don't miss this. Where has false hope gotten us? Satan is a master at presenting false hope with incredible packaging. You see, it was in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve, and he told her that if she ate of the fruit, that she would be as gods, knowing good and evil. Her eyes would be opened. And so what did she do? She looked at the fruit. It looked good. It would make her wise. And so she then herself would look good and sound good and be wise and be smart and be like gods. And so in a moment of Satan presenting an incredible amount of false hope, Satan, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and everything changed. You see, it was the presenting of false hope to Adam and Eve that the created son, Adam, cast the whole of creation into a curse by him believing the serpent. What was affected? Who was affected by, Satan, by Adam's sin? Who was dealt the death blow? All of us that have been born of Adam. It is our natural response to put, false, to put our confidence in false hope. We do it without even thinking. And so, who's affected by Adam's sin? 
all that have been born of Adam. The curse of sin meant that all are sinners and all sinners must die. But then there's a second death that all sinners must pay for their sin. And eternal separation from God, their creator in hell. You and I don't just get sick because of the fall. We get God's wrath because of the fall. We're not pretend sinners because of the fall. We're sinners under the condemnation of God because of the fall. And so in the aftermath of the fall, instead of false hope that Satan presents, God comes into the garden and he covers Adam and Eve and he tells them of a true hope. A true hope to come who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Who the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the one that comes. But there's going to be, com- there's going to be one that comes who is true hope. He is hope embodied. He is hope from heaven that would redeem and save those that have been dealt the death blow of the fall. All that were under the condemnation of sin. All that were under the wrath of God had, given, had been given a true hope to look to. Who is that? That is Jesus the Son of God. He comes to the earth. He lives sinlessly. He dies as a substitute in our place. He dies the death that sinful man deserved, yet he never sinned. He's buried. He rises again, proving himself to be God. And to all who come to Christ and place their hope, their trust in him for salvation, those find deliverance, those find salvation from the coming wrath and the punishment of a holy God. But listen very carefully. You aren't because you're not a pretend sinner. You don't just get pretend forgiveness. You get real forgiveness. You don't just get a false hope of forgiveness. You get real forgiveness and you get real righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus that he lived out on this earth is given to you. And so when God sees his redeemed children, he sees them not as sinners but as saints. This is the good news of the gospel. That God no longer identifies you by your sin. He identifies you by His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I move from a life of false hope to real hope. And all of this, like I said, because you're not a pretend sinner, there is no pretend Savior and there is no pretend grace. It's a real grace that's given in the person of Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, you have never placed your faith in Jesus, maybe your confidence today is resting, your hope is resting, your trust is resting in something you've done, something somebody else did for you, something that you experienced in a religious and Christian environment, can I encourage you today to realize that those might be good hopes, but they're ultimately false hopes. Because the only true hope is Jesus Christ. Christ and Him alone. And what is so intriguing for us is a lot of us in here today say, yes, Jesus is my only hope. And then tomorrow we will go on living with the false hope. The false hope. But because Jesus is our only hope, listen very carefully. Jesus is our only hope. Listen, we don't primarily praise God because He gives us things. We praise God because he gives us himself. Let me say that again. We don't primarily praise God because he gives us things. We praise him because he gives us himself. Maybe you're here today, and in the last year, maybe in the last six months, maybe in the last couple years, you have experienced what you think is the incredible blessing and favor of God. Maybe you've got a great job, and you say, should I be thankful for my job? Absolutely, you should be thankful for your job. Be most thankful that Jesus finished the job that the Father gave him done. You say, what about my family? I'm I'm thankful for my family. 
you should be thankful for your family. But be most thankful that Jesus brought you into God's family. Are you thankful for good health? There's a lot of reasons today in all that we've experienced over the last couple of years that if you're in good health today, you should rejoice. But be most thankful that nothing in life or death will separate you from God because of Jesus. Are you thankful for food and drink? Me too. <laughs> you should be. But listen, be most thankful today that you received in Christ the satisfaction of His grace that nourishes you now and forever. And for all of this, listen very carefully, for all of this and in all of this, I say to us, all of us, including myself, what the psalmist said beginning and end, praise ye the Lord. And, and church, let us never stop praising the one who never stops reigning. Let us never stop praising the one who never stops reigning. This is our King. This is our Lord. This is our God. He has given us Himself in Christ. That is reason enough to while you live, as long as you live, praise ye the Lord. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.